0: Please pray with me. Lord, what a privilege it is to be together this morning, worshiping and praising your holy name on this glorious day. We thank you for this time of year, Lord. And we just ask, Lord, as you're given such glorious weather, that we would take advantage of it and use it for the purposes that are set before us in this passage this day. To gospel neighbor and Lord God in all things, that we would take this passage... Apply it to our lives and see how we might love you and serve you and know you to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, we're in this series in Luke throughout this year, and we've seen in the first nine chapters of Luke, we've addressed the question, Who is Jesus? And from chapter 10 to chapter 24 in Luke's gospel, it's answering the question well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple, as Jesus calls us, of Jesus Christ? And so we learned last week that the first part of chapter 10 of Luke informed us that we're to be gospel messengers. That we are to open our mouths and tell others about the glorious love of God in Jesus Christ to others. To persuade them and urge them to believe it. And today we get to this passage in this well familiar story, I'm sure, we learn that we're to be gospel neighbors. And in fact, gospel neighboring is in some ways the incarnation of gospel messaging. You know, they're both intrinsic in Jesus' mind, and most of our minds, they're not. So let's look at what we mean by this term of gospel neighboring. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of your bulletin printed out for you. And what we learn in this passage is that gospel neighboring is mandatory for the Christian. Number two, that it's an immense task which God calls us to. And last, we see the motivation for gospel neighboring, all right? It's mandate, it's immensity, and it's motivation. First of all, gospel neighboring is mandatory. You know, this is a well-familiar parable, and it's an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer. Now, what you need to understand, this is not the lawyers that we think. This is a religious lawyer. This is a guy who's well-schooled in the Torah, He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He's a legal representation of the law in matters of the Torah. So he's a religious scholar, and he comes to Jesus to ask him a question. Now, why? He's trying to expose Jesus. Why is he trying to expose Jesus? Because Jesus is always hanging around the wrong kinds of people. He hangs out at Jake's on the lake on a regular basis. He hangs out in the most awful places. And so these religious folks don't like it. And so he's suspicious of Jesus. And he's expecting in this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That Jesus is going to respond by saying something like, oh, it really doesn't matter how the way you live your life. Just believe in him, accept him, and God will accept you just as you are. And he loves you. So he expects Jesus to say that to expose him as a false teacher, but really it's in this passage Jesus who exposes him. And my friends, if you feel exposed this morning as this message goes forth, that's a good thing. So just buckle your seatbelt. It's, it's going to hurt a little, I promise, because it hurt me all week. So it's your turn, all right? Here we go. So Jesus does what in response to his question? He asks a question. Don't you love it? You know, this isn't something Gene makes up. You know, it's a really good thing when you start talking about spiritual things with your neighbors, just ask questions. It works 95% of the time, really does. So he responds with a question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, there's only two ways you can answer a question like that, because after all, you're asking a law expert. This law expert could quote all 613 laws if he wanted to, probably. But it's better if you can summarize it using the last two points of those 613, which is the Shema from Deuteronomy. So that's what he does. He responds back. Verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and your neighbors yourself. Archbishop William Temple said, Your religion is what you do in your solitude. In other words, when your mind is completely unshackled, you have nothing to think about and worry about. Where does your mind go? Is it to God and his beauty and his attributes? The answer, of course not. It goes somewhere else. And whatever that somewhere else is, that's our real God. That's where our faith lies. So therefore, the first test of the law is that we're to love God in such a way that it demands and commands our solitude. Loving God so much that we're content in any circumstances because you always already have what you've always wanted, which is a relationship with God himself. That's the first rule, but it doesn't stop there, does it? The next one is love your neighbors yourself. Meaning? Meeting the needs of my neighbor with all the force, with all the joy, with all the energy, with all the speed, with which I meet my own. Be as happy for them when their needs are met as you are for your own because you put your happiness inside theirs. And you think, well, is that all? Do you feel the weight of this? You see, when you're looking at the laws, all 613 of them, and you're ticking them off every day what you're doing, you can start to feel pretty good about yourself just like this guy. He feels pretty good about himself, quite frankly. So what does Jesus say to him? You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's actually brilliant what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is saying that that law of loving God, loving neighbor, is what the life of a disciple looks like. But what he's saying is the law, though be a way of life, is not the way to life. All right? You should live that way, but you'll never be saved that way, and Jesus is going to show him. And so the religious lawyer immediately justifies himself, right? He immediately senses what Jesus is trying to do, which is knock him off his pedestal of self-righteousness. So he seeks to... Justify himself. Justification that I'm right before God and right with human race. So he says, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, let's interpret that. Uh, Jesus, let's be reasonable. You don't just mean anybody, do you? You know. Let's just whittle this down to the bare minimum. What's the lowest common denominator that I can do and be in order to have eternal life? Because that's the original question, right? Right? Because that's the basic foundation of his life. I'm a good guy, you know? I pay my taxes. I raise my kids. And Jesus is knocking him off the pedestal. And so my friends... Jesus responds with a story. It's a story where the protagonist, the hero, and if you see what this hero does, he meets these incredible needs along the, the Jericho Jerusalem road. And it's an incredibly costly care that he has you have to realize this story is the answer to what's the absolute core of what God means to love my neighbor. And Jesus is saying to meet the needs of people around you who don't believe what you believe at all. Because Samaritans and Jews had two different religions. Each thought one or the other was blasphemous, and they absolutely hated one another. And Jesus is saying, I want you to look out there at the people you ordinarily despise. I want you to look out there and see people who don't believe what you believe. And I want you to meet their needs with such concreteness and authenticity that they're going to wonder, this is unexplainable. Why are you the way you are? That's gospel neighboring to meet the concrete needs, the human needs of all the people around us where we live, where we work, where we play in such a way so that they will be able to hear the good news of Jesus through us because our lives are so unexplainable. We see it throughout the scriptures, right? You know, in the parable of sheep and goats, the only difference between the sheep and the goats and what they did and didn't do, they all believed the same thing. They, they said out of their mouths But the sheep did what the Father always has asked them to do. Well, the goats did too, but they never have a relationship with the Father. I don't know you. The parable of the fruit tree. One tree bore fruit, the other one didn't. And Jesus has the audacity to say, here's how I know the difference between a person who just says they believe and the person who's really been touched by my supernatural grace. So first of all, my friends, it's mandatory for each and every one of us. Now, when you hear that, don't you start to sympathize a little bit with the lawyer? You know, you want to start to say, well, Jesus, you know, be reasonable. Would you please? Certainly you could put some limits on this because I'm feeling pretty guilty here. Would it be all right if I put some limits on it, Lord? Jesus says, absolutely not. It's mandatory to everyone where you live, where you work, and where you play. Secondly, it's, it's not on my terms. It's on God's terms, and it's the n- human need that's in front of me. In other words, it's an immense task to which God calls us to. And there are three ways in this passage in which Jesus shows the immensity of this. He says there are three ways that we try to limit this. We try to limit it to the who we minister to. We try to limit it to the when. And we try to limit to how much. First, we limit the who. You see, it's natural to give aid to people who are like us. To people who have been through what we've been through. You know, if you've ever been through any type of experience and then you see a person a little younger than you who's going through the trials you went through, you have a heart for them and you want to help them. And you do that easily. But if they're not like you, eh, not so much. Right? That's exactly what's going on here. The priest and Levite, not of my tribe, I'm moving on. All right? And Jesus says, don't you dare try to limit this. Secondly, we, we try and tend to limit the when. And this is where the young Gene Sherman really was guilty. Okay, because I grew up on a two-thirds of an acre, a half an acre lot in Fairfax, Virginia, looking like the Virginia countryside. But out on the edge of the city of Fairfax at that time was a trailer park, and all those kids went to Fairfax High School. And they were called the Fairfax Rebels. You know what we called them? The Fairfax Red Knicks. Because they were. I mean, they were, some of them were what we called derogatorily poor white trailer trash. And you know, they were always getting into trouble. And it was their fault. They just kept doing the same thing over and over. They didn't listen to a daggone thing that anybody told them. They had a trampoline in the backyard, they had three cars in the backyard, they had a sofa on the front porch of their trailer, you know, and they had an above-ground pool, you know, a bunch of low lives trying to live the high life. You know what? And then the rector of my church said, we're going to do a mission to the trailer park. And I'm like, What's, hmm. We got to love those people. No, my friends, we're called, this is a story of a good samaritan and the hate between the jews and the samaritan were immense they couldn't have been any more different racially religiously he gives us a character who would have absolutely believed the guy who's dying deserves to die but this is not an individualistic society back then Everyone, that guy, that group of people is oppressing me, and I'm going to keep going. And Jesus is saying, don't you dare. The truly poor or the truly poor, the truly needy are the truly needy, even if it's in the nice neighborhoods that we live in around here. We're to reach out with the good news. Jonathan Edwards essentially writes in a, in a beautiful essay on charity. He writes, but Christ loved you, pitied you, and greatly laid himself out to relieve you from all want and misery, which you brought on yourself by your own folly. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? In other words, Edwards is saying, Jesus looked down from heaven, and if he had said, I only want to help the deserving poor, he could have saved himself a trip. Because there isn't anybody down here who deserves it. And so third, we limit the how much we're willing to help. We have a tendency to say, well, look, if I was doing well, I would help, but I can't afford to help. Jesus deliberately, even though he's making the story up, it is a parable, puts the story on a stretch of road that the listening audience would have completely understood. It's the road from Jericho To Jerusalem. And through that road, even historically, they have to pass through what's called the Pass of Blood. That sounds inviting, doesn't it? Why do you think it's called that way? Because people always got jumped, always got robbed. Some got killed. So what happens is likely the guy who's been destroyed at the Pass of Blood, he's dying, and along comes the priest. Along comes the Levite and we're going to get to them in a second. But let me tell you why they pass by on the lo- by quickly on the side. Because if you see somebody who's still alive in the pass of blood, he should be dead. But he's not. So that means what? The robbers are nearby. So I'm going to keep going, man. Right? That's what that what he's trying to convey. But the Samaritan stops at a great risk to his life and with incredible sacrifice. He, he puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn, gives two denarii, and not just two denarii, says, Look, if it goes over two denarii, I'll come back and pay the difference. I'll take care of him. So, Jonathan Edwards in this treatise quotes Galatians 6 two, bear one another's burdens and he says we may by the rules of the gospel be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves else how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled if we are never obliged to relieve others burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves how do you bear your neighbor's burdens when you only do it when you bear no burden at all So when people say I can't afford to give, what they mean is I can't afford to give to the poor or the needy without it really burdening me, without it hurting my living standards, without it really making me radically sacrifice, and Jesus says exactly. There's no such thing as a person who can't afford to help. In fact, if you can afford to help, you're not helping enough, according to Jesus, So Jesus Christ says, let me tell you the immensity of what I'm calling my followers to do. Let me tell you how radical this is. You're to help people who ordinarily you hate the sight of. You're to help them, even if they've brought this upon themselves. And you help them to the place where the burden falls on you to that degree. Don't you dare limit it. Well, you do ask the question, don't you? Who lives like this? At least I did. And I think most people would say, uh, we should do it, but we don't. I don't know anybody who lives like this that well. Nobody lives like this. So so how do people live up to this? Where do you get the power to live like this? Well, it all comes from the motivation, my friends. And there's an adequate and an inadequate way to be motivated to give to the needy around us. The first inadequate way is either through the secular reasons or religious reasons. You know, the secular person says, well, you know, we're enlightened people. We're blessed, you know. I'm liberal, decent, civic-minded, concerned for the poor. We should give because that's what we should do. And we're going to work for political policies that will make sure that these people are taken care of. That's the secular version. Then there's the religious version. You give because the Bible says to give. Or the Torah says to give. Or the Quran says to give. There's not one world religion that does not care for the poor. So you see, there's a religious, religious version and a secular version, but they both motivate you through guilt. And you have to give so much. Don't you feel bad? Give it away. It's like always watching those St. Jude's hospital commercials, you know? Oh my gosh, that same kid keeps tramping that kid out because he's cute. Drives me crazy. But Jesus puts into the parable two people who are extremely moral and extremely religious. A priest and a Levite. And the irony of this story, and Jesus could have put Pharisees, Sadducees, all kinds of offices in there, but he puts the priest and the Levites. You know why? Because they're in charge of the almsgiving of the synagogue. They're in charge of giving the money to the poor. I mean, 100 years ago, 150 years ago in Anglican churches, there was an alms box in the back of the church. And as you walked out, you emptied your pocket change in it. It was offerings. And the deacon of the church made sure with his deacon team that money got distributed to the needy throughout the community, throughout the week. He's trying to show us that people who out of duty, out of morality who out of just simple conscience ordinarily do help the poor, when it comes to the radical grace and the radical generosity that God is calling to us to in Jesus Christ, when it comes to serving like the Samaritan, they won't do it. No way. They go around the other side. Because Jesus is saying morality won't take you very far. It can make you a little bit generous, And it can make you feel bad about the way you're living, but it can't take you very far because morality won't change you, and our kids won't buy it, and our grandkids won't buy it either. So therefore, what do we do with this? Are you feeling guilty in any way? Stop. Because being guilty won't take you where Jesus wants you to go. Jesus is not trying to make the lawyer feel guilty. What he's trying to get them to see is that the way you're living your life is insufficient. Because the key to this story is where the the lawyer is in the story. Because if Jesus had said, a Samaritan had got beaten up on the road, and a Jew came by on his horse, and ministered to him and took all good care of him, the lawyer would have said, well, that's a stupid story. That's dumb. No, no Jew would do that. Matter of fact, if I saw him taking his last breath along the road, I'd probably run over him on my horse and back up on him "Eh, eh, eh," one more time to make sure the task is done, then keep going. That's a stupid story, Jesus. No. No. Jesus is asking him in this story, what if you were on the road? Because that's an Israelite who's been beaten up on the pass of blood, dying, bleeding to death. What if your only hope to live was an act of free grace from an enemy who doesn't owe you anything, doesn't owe you any mercy at all? In fact, owes you the opposite. What if your only hope was an act of free, grace?" of radical neighborly love. Would you want that grace? Only if that happened to you would you get up and start to love your neighbors in this way. Only then when you look at people who in the past you despised the wrong race, the wrong class, the wrong education, the irresponsible, you look at them and say, I was no different. I was saved by someone who didn't owe me anything. I was saved by someone who had been my enemy. I was saved by someone who I had rejected. I was saved by radical grace. That would change you, right? It would get rid of my moralism. It would get rid of my pride. It would get rid of making people feel like you've got to be like me. In other words... You'll never be a radically neighbor until you're radically neighbored by the true good Samaritan. And you have been in Jesus Christ. Don't you see how Jesus turned it around? I love the ending. He says, verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy can't even say Samaritan. Did you, do you see what he's doing here? He can't, the one who showed mercy. He can't even say it. No, it, it, it's beautiful. The guy has to choke it out. He says, until you get that, young man, the rule won't happen. Yeah, we should be good people. We shouldn't be racist. We shouldn't, you know, there's no selfishness rule. You shouldn't spend all your money on yourself. But I'm not giving you a rule. I'm giving you a relationship. I'm giving you a dynamic. And everyone who embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ gets exactly what they need to live this way. Because we all self-justify, right? We all. We, we we, We all explain our lives away all the time. When you're a self-justifier, you know how this guilt will beat you up. And Jesus is trying to get us to see in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus Christ demands the love that cannot be demanded and requires the love that cannot be required. In other words, he fulfills it for us. And Jesus says, the radical gospel neighboring requires a love that cannot be a response to a requirement, but a response to free grace. And only when you see the true neighbor and what he's done for you will you become a neighbor for others. That's why we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm fine, found, was blind. But now I see, and I can go and be a decent neighbor now, and so can you. Fill us Holy Spirit to that end, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.